0: Kids, I hope you have a wonderful time in the back. Uh, Enjoy that time. If you're with us in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. Uh, Last Saturday, I was uh, at a track meet down at a private school over in Washington, D.C., and uh, we had a little bit of a lull in the track meet, and so I, I snuck and wandered around the building a little bit, and I stumbled upon a huge wrestling invitational Uh, that was happening in the school. And I thought, how providential it is that I stumbled upon this, Um, watching these young men um, locked in these wrestling matches, sort of sweating with one another and flexing around one another, doing all the things you do in wrestling matches. Uh, How providential, uh, considering the the story of Jacob that we looked at last week, uh, the story of Jacob wrestling with God. If, it was, uh, if you weren't with us, it was an event that happened in the middle of the night in the desert. While Jacob was alone, it went on for hours and he refused to let go of God without a blessing. Uh, it was one of the most defining moments in the life of Jacob, especially his spiritual moments, um, because at that point God had brought him to the end of himself and all Jacob could do was to hang on to God for dear life. He had to Trust God with the circumstances of his life. We finished last week with a a beautiful poem uh, by a poet named uh, Jessica Jacobs. And the topic was that even in wrestling, we have to see that as an embrace. And so what we've been talking about throughout is that maybe you're in a place in your life where you feel like you are wrestling with God, Uh, You're left with a lot of unanswered questions or circumstances that, that may be keeping you awake at night. You might wonder why God has allowed this thing to happen to you. Or maybe you wonder, how could God get glory out of this situation? How could this situation work for my good? And so you've been wrestling with God over those questions. But faith recognizes that even when we are wrestling with God it is still an embrace. We are enfolded in his arms, even if we are like little children trying to kick and scream and wiggle our way out of God's arms, uh, we are still locked in his embrace. But what's so beautiful about the Jacob story is that this wrestling embrace that he has with God gave way to another very unexpected embrace. And so we turn to our passes this morning Uh, Genesis chapter 33, I believe I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter this morning. So Genesis chapter 33, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, And Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And later, uh, last, and la- Leah likewise bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on away, on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the gift of worship this morning, Lord, and thanks for your presence that is with us. We. I uh, know your promise that as we gather in your name, Lord, as we sing praises to you, Father, read from your scripture, you visit us uniquely. And so thank you for this great gift of worship uh, that we so desperately need, Father. We need to, to be refreshed in your truth. We're surrounded by such um, falsehood, Lord, that, that we desperately need to soak in your truth. So we pray now that as we meditate on your scriptures, Lord, you would help us to see the beauty of your truth. And also to apply it to our lives. Your spirit can do that for us. So we invite you, spirit, to come and shape our hearts this morning as we reflect on your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So our passage is is all about reconciliation this morning. And I think we all can probably agree on the fact that reconciliation uh, can be a very, very hard thing. We've all been there before, two parties, um, don't see eye to eye, Uh, maybe there is some offense between the two parties, and the result is that the relationship is broken, and sometimes it feels beyond repair. And we know that reconciliation can even be harder when it comes within families. Uh, This past week, I listened to a podcast uh, that interviewed a a marriage therapist, and she works with... um, Hundreds of couples each week who are troubled, and she offers them sort of strategies and techniques to help rebuild communication and trust, but even she admitted that at the end of the day, she sees far too many relationships that come into her office where really, in her words, uh, it's too late. Uh, the, re- the relationship just appears to be too far gone and beyond repair, beyond reconciliation. Sometimes those conflicts among marriages or families can be some of the hardest conflict that there is. Sometimes those conflicts go on for decades, uh, just decades of resentment and bitterness and avoidance. And at the end of the day, uh, reconciliation just seems all but impossible. I'm sure if uh, Jacob and Esau rolled into some therapist's office, some family therapist's office, um, that therapist would wonder could these two brothers ever be reconciled with one another after all there had been decades of anger decades of uh, bitterness and from a human perspective uh, any reconciliation between these two brothers must have seemed all but impossible but of course we know with God involved all things are possible. There's really two means of reconciliation that are on display here in our passage. There's, there's reconciliation that's based on hard work and effort, and then there's another type of reconciliation that we see here reconciliation that is based upon grace. Both strategies we see are employed here, but only one is the method that ensures two, a true reconciliation. So let's start with looking at reconciliation that we see here based on hard work and effort. And we know all about this. If we have wronged someone, we recognize that we have wronged someone, often our efforts at reconciliation come through a lot of hard work and effort. I don't have to tell you that that this Tuesday is Valentine's Day, or maybe I do need to tell you, and you need to remember that and mark it on your calendar um, I've noticed that some people love Valentine's Day, other people uh, can't stand it, think it's a hallmark holiday, but we know that for some people it can be a really big deal. In fact, approximately 6 million people get engaged every year on Valentine's Day. I heard that, that was a lot of people, 6 million people. On average, Americans will spend $1 billion on chocolate just this year for Valentine's Day. And also 50 million roses will be purchased and given this year on Valentine's Day. So if you think about that, that's a a lot of chocolate and that's a lot of flowers that will be exchanged on Tuesday. But we also know that Valentine's Day isn't the only occasion where people give flowers and give chocolate. There's all sorts of occasions out there. But we know of one in particular, and that is usually we give chocolate and candy or other sorts of things uh, when we have really screwed up. Uh, The story is told about a husband who walks into a florist and asks, I need to buy my wife a bouquet of flowers. And he says, How big of a bouquet should I buy my wife? And the florist looks back at him and says, Well, how much did you screw up? Because that will inform the size bouquet that you should buy. It's a reminder that there's something in us that inherently wants to apply work and effort in order to ensure reconciliation. And at some points, I suppose, it can be a very useful tactic for reconciliation. Reconciliation. You see, Jacob had clearly wronged his brother Esau when they were young. If you haven't been with us, Jacob uh, managed to steal his brother's birthright. Uh, his brother, in a moment, uh, at a critical moment, was hungry and impetuous. So Jacob seized upon that opportunity and stole what was not rightly his. Later on, he steals the spiritual blessing of his father Isaac away from Esau Uh, Esau's leadership in the family, his double inheritance was was taken away at that moment and all of it was because Jacob had seized upon his father's weakness to make all of this happen. At the end, uh, Esau is furious and he vows to have his brother killed, so Jacob needs to flee and that relationship is severed and it appears it is beyond reconciliation After this event, Jacob is alone. He's penniless uh, by himself in the desert where God meets him for the very first time and this becomes the start of Jacob's spiritual journey with God. But after decades and decades, Jacob is commanded by that same God to return home. It was time for Jacob to face the music with his brother Esau. Now, I think what's important about our passage to recognize is that at least Jacob has now, decades later, recognized that he had wronged his brother Esau. And I know that doesn't seem like it's very important, but it really is important in the step of reconciliation because so often we delude and deceive our own hearts about what we have done. And so Jacob at least had matured enough to know that he had indeed wronged his brother. He wasn't making excuses for his behavior anymore, he wasn't shifting the blame anymore, Uh, he wasn't playing the victim in this story. He knew that he was wrong and he wanted to reconcile with his brother Esau. In fact, he knew that he had to reconcile with his brother Esau or it could mean his death. God had, had put him in this very tenuous position. And so what does Jacob do? Well, he puts forward all of this penance. If you ever heard that word penance before, it means sort of anything that we may work or any effort we put forward in order to ensure reconciliation. And so Jacob knows that his brother is approaching, so he sends his possessions in waves as a gift towards his brother in order to procure his forgiveness and hopefully satisfy His anger. He sends messengers along with all of this stuff to ensure that that Esau knows that it's from Jacob. And if you read the the chapter before, in total, Jacob sends 220 goats, 220 sheep, 30 camels, 50 cows, and 30 donkeys ahead of the way towards his brother. What is he doing here? He's trying to repay Esau for all the the cost of stealing his inheritance from him. In the ancient world, this would have been an absurd amount of wealth that is being put forward, that is given. That that wealth was intended to be an intermediary, a go-between, a penance that Jacob is offering towards his brother Esau. Now this was all attempted before Jacob wrestled with God because it was Jacob's go-to strategy in order to ensure reconciliation. But the writer leaves us hanging. Will it be enough? Will this penance, will all this wealth be enough for his brother Esau? See, I think this was ingrained in Jacob's heart, but I also think it's ingrained in our hearts as well as a means of reconciliation. You see, I believe that all of us know deep down, I think the scriptures point to this, all of us know deep down that there is a God and that we have offended him with our lives. Because of sin, each one of us is, is born hostile to God. That intimate, deep relationship that we're intended to have with our Creator was broken, severed from the beginning. It needs to be reconciled. And so our default mode or our default uh, strategy as human beings is penance. We try really hard through our effort and our hard work to somehow restore and reconcile our relationship with God. We do everything we can to sort of beef up our spiritual merit, to to beef up our spiritual resume before God. Maybe we even come to a point where we uh, commit to, I'm going to go to church every single Sunday, or I'm going to pray every day, or I'm going to engage in more deeds of mercy and service. I'll clean up my language a little bit more, or I'll give more money to the poor. But we all deep down wonder, will it be enough? Will it be enough to merit, to earn our reconciliation with God? How, many, how much flowers and chocolate do I need to buy to earn my way back into God's good graces? But one of the things that the Bible is very clear about is that our offense before God is so great that no self-salvation strategy will ever work. No effort or penance will ever be enough. We, we cannot reconcile with God left to our own abilities and our own strength. Instead, something much, much stronger is needed. And that's what brings us to the other reconciliation strategy here, the one that is effective in our passage, and that is reconciliation that is based upon grace and upon grace alone. I love preaching on Jacob's story because I believe that this section here, especially the first couple of verses in chapter 33, are one of the most beautiful pictures in all of the Bible. When Esau meets Jacob at this most critical and most crucial juncture, Jacob is met by his brother's embrace. It says that they both wept with one another in that embrace. And it, it gives you this sense that as they Uh, hugged one another, as they physically embraced one another, all of the years of hostility, the decades of hostility and bitterness and anger all evaporated in one critical moment as Jacob and Esau are reconciled with one another. And here's the beauty. It had nothing to do with penance It had nothing to do with wealth or hard effort. In fact, in verse 8, Esau says to his brother, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, it's to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said to him, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. See, Esau isn't interested in his brother's penance. He simply wants to be reconciled with this brother. When you think about it, it's shocking from what we know about Esau. This is so out of character for a man who we know to be impetuous, angry, hairy, a hunter gatherer type. Uh, Everything that Esau embodies, you would expect Esau to be a manly man who doesn't hug. Instead, what is he? He's a man who exacts revenge when he has been wronged. And that is what makes this moment so remarkable. But for Jacob, it's also what helps him to know immediately that God is behind all of it. That's why he even says, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. You have accepted me. You see, this is a beautiful reconciliation, but is it a reconciliation that is built upon grace and grace alone. That is why it is from the hand of God a God who is a God of grace. Friends, why I love this passage so much is I think it's just such a beautiful picture of the gospel itself. All of our penance, all of our good works, all of our resume building will never be enough to reconcile with a God whom we have deeply offended. And so our reconciliation comes through grace and through grace alone made possible by the perfect sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave of himself for us. And so what the Bible says we are to do is that by faith, we are to receive this gift of grace, be reconciled to God, and then we are to rest. We are to rest. No penance is needed. Instead, we rest in who Christ is, and what he has done for us. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, um, but when I was in college, uh, I had a a gentleman I met, uh, a friend, uh, an acquaintance named Joel, and he had a powerful thing that had happened in his life that had really shaped everything about his life. And I remember him telling the story that in the fall of uh, 1991, this is how long ago this was, and in the fall of 1991, he was... 16 years old and he had just gotten his driver's license and uh, 16 year olds who just get their driver's license uh, feel very proud of themselves and like take the car out and drive really fast and one day he was out on the backcountry roads driving really quickly and uh, he was going with some friends to do a pickup football game. And he saw an Amish buggy that was on the road not too far ahead of him, and so he decided that he was going to just slip into the left-hand lane and speed by the buggy and, and have fun doing so. And he says he remembers the moment that as he was pulling alongside the buggy at a high speed, he, he, it was as if time froze, he saw the, the nose of the horse turn left and there was this brilliant accident, this huge crash uh, between him and the car. And as he's recovering, he recognizes that that there were two people in the car, a young couple that had just been married. They were on their honeymoon. They'd been married five days before. And because of this accident, he was responsible for killing the bride, for killing the wife of uh, this young man. So, of course, he mourned this. He didn't want to leave his house. And one day, his father knocked on the door and said, you need to go to the funeral, And so his father drove him in the car to the funeral. Uh, If you go to an Amish funeral, it usually happens in people's homes. And uh, he wrote this about uh, what happened when he arrived at the funeral. He said, the parents of the Amish lady who died, Melvin and Barbara, walked up to me and put their arms around me. Through tears, I muttered how sorry I was, and they spoke some of the most incredible words that I think are possible to utter. We forgive you. Then someone led me to the back of the room where the husband, Aaron, stood beside the open casket of his wife. To my surprise, as I nervously glanced at her, I was looking at a beautiful young woman. Aaron, like her parents, came to me with open arms. I said, how can I ever repay you? And he simply forgave me. And we hugged as the freedom of forgiveness swept over and through me. Friends, we stand before God just as guilty as Joel was that day in that, at that funeral. But God isn't interested in our penance, just as they weren't interested in Joel's penance. God isn't interested in our penance. Instead, he simply wants to embrace us in a warm, tight hold, never letting go embrace of his grace. And that, my friends, is the greatest news of the gospel that there is. Let's pray.